the second week of our series, um, No Spin, Just Jesus, and we're excited about that. I know some of you aren't so excited about it, but that's all right. Before we dive in, I just want to keep you abreast of a couple things. Outdoor baptism is next week. That's after our three normal services that we have here. So we have services just like we always do. But after the third service, we drive out to White Star Park, carefully avoiding the city of Gibsonburg, who is having their own celebrations for 9-11. And so we'll give you a map to get out there without maybe hitting all the traffic. And we're excited about that. Uh, By the way, if you uh, have come to uh, place your trust in, in Christ as your Savior, and you have never been baptized since that time, Uh, We invite you right after this service, you can go right over here to the quad in room 42 and meet with Pastor Tim, and he'll answer any questions you have about that, and we'd be glad to include you for next week. Another another heads up would be, uh, ladies, just kind of a mark your calendar thing, on September, Friday, September 23rd, uh, there is a a simulcast event that Mindy has planned for right here at Grace. Uh, That is uh, where there's an event in Indianapolis, I think like a three-day women's conference, but part of that will be simulcast all around the United States, so you can can kind of enjoy being with them in Indiana right here in our auditorium, and uh, also ladies from around the world, again, 7 o'clock, September 23rd, Uh, don't forget that. Well, we're diving in again to uh, see... Uh, what, what God says about politics, what the Bible has to say about politics, and there's some stuff there. It's interesting that uh, we've had kind of a reaction uh, toward our series that isn't always positive. What I've noticed is in the reaction, as people have been telling me what people have been saying, a lot of times this kind of accusation has been thrown uh, to grace, oh, they're a megachurch, which technically we're actually not even a megachurch, but it'd be great if we were, we're working on that. But you realize the church that was a mega church was the very first church in Jerusalem, right? Where 3,000 people met together one day. That's a mega church. That's what we're shooting for. Haven't got there yet. I don't know how that's a criticism, but, but it is. But uh, so as we kind of dive in here, we talked about it last, last week um, as we were working through this. We remember that Jesus was asked in the last week of his life in Jerusalem after the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday and before his crucifixion, during that week, he was asked a very political question, which he didn't dodge and he didn't answer simplistically or the way they expected. The reason that was such a political question was because when Jesus was about eight years old, we don't know a lot about Jesus' life then, but when he was a boy, there was actually a national revolt in Israel against the very tax that they're asking Jesus about that was put down by Rome. So a revolt that was ended by Rome where people died. And and that revolt was a consequence of Rome initiating this very tax. And so now they are trying to discredit Jesus in public while Jesus is teaching in the temple. And then they ask him the famous question, Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? When Jesus answers, remember he asked for the coin. When he answers, he really rejects three typical political responses that that people did then and we do today. First of all, he rejected political simplicity. 
They were asking him a yes, no question. But Jesus didn't give them a yes or no. But he also did not dodge the question. He actually gave, he would not limit himself to a simple yes, no answer. He really gave a deeper, more politically astute answer than, than they were expecting. So he rejects political simplicity. He also rejects political apathy. He could have stayed out of it. He could have chosen not to answer the question or dodge the question, but he didn't. He, he answers the question. He engages in the political debate of the day. And all the people understood it that way, that he was engaging in the big political mess question, the political trap, the political debate of the day when he said, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, to God's what, what's God's. And we talked about what that actually meant. And by the way, how do these things apply to us today? Avoid political simplicity means, as believers, we shouldn't just go in and pull a straight party you know, ticket without giving any thought to morality or what maybe God wants. Because remember, God first. That's what Jesus said. Give to God what's God's. Second thing, political apathy, which I know there's a bunch of people probably in this room that are thinking, I don't like either candidate and uh, I think they both stink. And so I'm just sitting this one out. Jesus didn't sit it out. Jesus engaged. And I'm thinking we should do the same thing. That's what he's teaching us to be salt and light. We should not. Jesus rejects political apathy. And then the third thing, as long as we understand that Jesus also rejects political superiority. That means Jesus also rejects this thought that, oh, we should be engaged because we think politics will give us the ultimate answers to the problems in the world. And politics will not give us the ultimate answers to the world's problems or our country's problems. Those ultimate answers are only found in Jesus Christ. So Jesus, in his genius answer avoids all three responses that a lot of people might respond with today. Rejecting, again, political simplicity, political apathy, political superiority. Now, what happens next as the eyewitness Matthew, one of the eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts recorded for us in Scripture, Matthew lets us know that right after this question, and remember, they're all amazed... They don't really know how to respond to that. They weren't expecting this kind of an answer. They wanted a yes or a no. Jesus gives them a very deep answer. They're sitting there. They're, they're amazed. They're kind of thinking through that. The Pharisees and the Herodians were. In the meantime, another group of people called the Sadducees, which were the theological liberals of the day, they engage with Jesus and ask him another question designed to discredit him in front of the people. And that what, they asked, what they asked Jesus was a question about the resurrection in heaven. Jesus answers them and really corrects them as he does that, saying that their thinking was wrong, which actually the Pharisees kind of like that. And now the Pharisees have been sidelined for a moment. They've been thinking through Jesus' answer. Wow, God first. He's saying God first, you know. And then they hear his answer about heaven. Oh, yeah, Jesus believes in the resurrection in heaven. And so now they're thinking about what to talk to Jesus next about, how to, how to kind of tr triangulate him into a political issue, a political problem. And so they're thinking, okay, Jesus is saying, keep, 
keep God first, give to God what's God's, and then also he believes in the resurrection in heaven. So how do you get to heaven? The Pharisees would say we get to heaven by keeping the law. Well, our problem, the problem of all the people is that there are 613 discernible laws in the Old Testament. How do we, we it's impossible to keep all those laws. So we're going to come to Jesus and we're going to ask him the question, what's the most important law? They're all important because we believe, the Pharisees do, that they all came from God. But we're, we can't keep them all, so let's boil this thing down to something that's more manageable. And so that's the question. They try one more time to ask Jesus a question that's going to be very difficult or politically awkward for him to answer. So that's what they do as they think through this. Now, Jesus' answer is revolutionary, just like the other answer. Jesus' answer redefines the law and how that applies to every area of our life. And then when he gives the answer, nobody, his answer is so complete and it can't be nitpicked. It's such a good answer that they decide we can't ask this guy any more questions. He's embarrassing us. Jesus then turns the tables and asks them a question that also has to do with politics to teach them something where he redefines their political Messiah. So are we ready? Okay, we're ready. You're much more ready than the last group that we had. All right, we are ready to go. So here's, here's the question that they ask. It's in Matthew as we're continuing in that chapter, beginning in verse 34. They ask Jesus to define in the law which law is the most important of the 613 discernible laws? Here's what he says. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, that other group in between, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? I just want to stop there for a moment. No doubt they are kind of pre-planning... They're asking this question, and they're probably uh, anticipating that Jesus will answer with a certain answer. They're probably thinking that since they're asking him the most important question of law, that they will go with one of the Ten Commandments. Because the Ten Commandments are the only laws, the top ten, that were actually written in front of Moses by the very finger of God, right? So... They hold those in higher regard, so they probably think that Jesus is going to answer with one of the Ten Commandments, maybe the first one, and they probably are kind of getting a rebuttal ready for that answer. So we, we don't know that, but that's the whole point. I mean, they're in a debate. And so that's how it's kind of all setting up. And then, but when Jesus replies, his answer is totally unexpected. He kind of comes out of left field and he gives them an answer that they cannot debate. It's amazing. Jesus' answer, and it's not a simplistic answer. Jesus' answer actually redefines the keeping of the law. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a game changer. And here's what he says. And Jesus said, this is the answer. And Jesus said to him in verse 37... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This 
is the great and foremost commandment. Now, because we've heard this many times, and to us, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. Love God, love people. Yeah, it's all over the place. Yeah, we get that. It, it's hard for us to understand how radical of an answer this was in the first century. Because people, including the Pharisees, are asking this question, and people in every religion, basically, in the world, thinks the way you, if you believe in a God, the way to get right with God is to follow God's rules. And our motivation for following God's rules is typically fear. Because if we don't follow his rules, bad things will happen to us. So we're mainly motivated by fear, although occasionally some people, I believe, are motivated by pride where they keep a certain set of laws just to show that they're better than all those other people who don't keep all those certain set of laws. So it's either, so the people all through history in every religion have always been motivated to keep whatever rules, God's rules they believe in because of two motivations, fear or pride. And Jesus comes along, and that included the Pharisees, who, who were guilty of both. Jesus comes along and says, you don't understand the law. Number one law, love God with your entire being. Love God with everything you've got. Love God with your entire life. And when he says this, he redefines the law because he's saying our motivation is not keeping the law. Our motivation is not fear of punishment. Our motivation is not pride that we're better than other people who don't keep the law. Our motivation is love. Because we cannot earn God's favor by keeping the law. Jesus is telling them something radical they've never heard before. He's telling them, keeping the law will not get you favor from God. Keeping the law will not put you in a right relationship with God. But that's what everybody thinks. But Jesus is saying, no, that's not it. The law, law keeping, can never fix your relationship with God. That's what he's saying. And they're blown away by this. There's no way to answer this. Love God with everything you have. That our law keeping is not out of fear, not out of pride. It's out of wanting to love God back. Our motivation for keeping the law is not fear. It's loving him back. It's wanting to follow him. Wanting... It's, it's completely opposite. We don't keep the law to get something from God, favor or blessing. We keep the law to give something to God, our love back to him because he's given us everything. Revolutionary, radical, never heard it before this way. That's what's happening. Loving God with all your heart. How do we get God's favor, God's forgiveness? Jesus doesn't go into those details, but we know the whole Bible is teaching us through the gospel. We don't, we don't get a relationship with God through rule keeping. We get a relationship with God through grace, through a gift that God grants us through faith in his son who died for us. And again, this is just a few days 
before Christ's death. So when we love God, it shows up in our obedience. That's what John says in 1 John. Loving God shows up in obedience. But our motivation for, for the obedience is love. So we mentioned baptism coming up. Why did we get baptized? Because God told us to. Once we become believers, get baptized. So we follow him in obedience. Is it fear? No. Do, do we have to fear that we're, we're not going to go to heaven if we don't get baptized? No. No, law keeping doesn't get you to heaven. We get baptized out of love for God to do what he wants us to do, to love him back. That's our motivation for baptism, to love God back. Okay, after this, now Jesus then includes in his answer something that they weren't even asking for. And he says, I'll not only tell you number one, I'll give you number two for free. You know, kind of a deal is, is where he's going. They didn't ask for number two. And he says, the second is like it, verse 39, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. He's saying love God shows up in obedience. Love people. Because we love God, he tells us to love people. He says on these two things hang, hangs the entire 613 laws and the prophets, everything, the whole Old Testament hangs on these two laws. Now, today in our modern culture, people will hear this, love others, love your neighbor as yourself. And they'll twist this to turn this into self-love. They'll say, well, you know, they just use psychological jargon to come up with this commandment that Jesus is telling us we got to love ourselves in order to love people and love God. This is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not commanding us to self-love. We can do that without being commanded. We've all got that problem. We love ourselves. That's what the Bible's telling us. We got that down. God's telling us, no, love others. And how do we do that? We do that sacrificially. The way to love others is not just simply with an emotion. The way to love others is do what's best for them at cost to yourself. Sacrifice in order to do what's best, what's beneficial for them. That's how we love our neighbors. That's what Jesus is telling us. That's how he defines love. Loving others is an outpouring of our love for God. And of course... The way we most love people is that we want all people, we want to point all people to God who loves them more than we do, and that they can have a relationship with him free, equal opportunity. God loves everyone equally. It's available. He's inviting. He's asking. He, he wants you to come to him. It's just through faith. That's what we want, and that's, that's what we do now. That's what love is. Now, so here, here we go. If you haven't been offended yet in our series, this will be the time. Well, come back next week. It could happen then too. But. So the question is, how do we love God and love people? How does that love for God first and love for people, how does that translate into us being involved politically 
Because we're already saying, can't make it simple, can't avoid it. It's not supreme. How do we do that? Well, most Bible-believing Christians in the, in the United States, we're talking about our political process, our country, do that. First of all, first of all, let me throw one thing out. A lot of, a lot of political debate is about economics, money. And I believe economics are secondary. You know, we all get that, depending on who's in office, we might, be, we might have more money in our pocket or not more money in our pocket. We, we get that. The, the really frustrating thing about politics is I'm not saying economics is non-moral. There's a morality to it. It's just not as important of a morality as the other things we're going to discuss. But, but think about this. One of our problems as a country, and this is a problem with both parties, is we continue every day to spend billions more than we bring in. And the question is, who pays? Who pays for that? Our deficit is increasing, increasing, increasing. This economics, secondary in importance. But think about it. It's, it's kind of maddening. Who pays? The debt goes up constantly, constantly, constantly. Who pays? Well, who pays is eventually, of course, we're always thinking somebody else pays. We vote money to ourselves and then somebody else has to pay. That, that's the way we do it. That's not loving God and that's not loving people. That's loving yourself. We got that. How do we do politics? Loving God, loving people. But it's not non-moral because there is a morality to it because as we spend money, somebody has to pay. Maybe our kids or our grandkids, but somebody, some point. We all recognize you cannot keep increasing our debt. There will be, nobody's arguing this, there will be a tipping point at some point some point, some magic number that everything falls. But I say this because recently we had a person in Congress give a speech on the floor of the House saying that it was immoral for us not to raise our deficit, that we could not follow God and not vote to increase our debt limit. This is, this is, this is, the, voting money to ourselves is not godly. I'm not, I'm not saying you should never do it. I'm just saying that as a Christian should be the least of your priorities. Because there are moral issues at stake. Following God. Following. So that's why most Bible-believing Christians tend to vote with some guidelines, and that is typically, for example, traditional moral values. Most Bible-believing Christians vote in a way where they're hoping, because this should be more important than money, that they vote in a way for traditional moral values. For example, what am I talking about? For example, a traditional definition of marriage. Most Bible-believing Christians will vote in such a way were for people who will support a traditional definition of marriage, meaning marriage is reserved for one man and one woman. Now, when they do this, when Christians are doing this, 
It's not because they want to hurt people who are gay or withhold rights. They're actually not withholding any rights. Gay people have a right to be married just like all of us. It's just they have to marry. We would say they have to marry. If you want marriage, it has to be with somebody of the opposite sex. We still have restrictions on marriage. If a brother wants to get married, he has the right. He just can't marry his sister. That's illegal. If a sister wants to get married, she has a right for marriage. She just can't marry her brother. If a mom wants to get married, she has a right to get married. She just can't marry her son. Son wants to get married. He has a right. Just can't be his mom. Dad can't be his daughter. Daughter can't. It's that. Can't it? If you're married, you have the right to get married again. You just have to end the first marriage. You don't have the right to add people to your marriage. We, we don't allow that. So a lot of Bible-believing Christians, and I'm, I'm just saying, we have a lot of new people in our church, just trying to get these cards out on the table so we understand you know, where different people are coming from. We understand that there are Christians in both parties. We, we're not debating that. But sometimes people are asking, well, well, why is it that Christians are all caught up in, in these traditional moral values? That seems to hurt people. Seems like you're not loving people. But Christians believe that there is right and wrong and we don't get to make the call. God does. We believe Hey, marriage is what, how God defines marriage. We don't get to say what marriage is. God says what marriage is because he invented it. And so we don't make the call. So we're like, that's, and we believe as we drift further and further from our Christian values, by the way, which were written into the Constitution because a far huge majority of our founding fathers were Christian, so these, that's where we're getting equality. That's where we're getting all this stuff endowed by our creator. That's all coming from Christianity. The fact that we can worship however we want, that's because this was founded as a Christian nation by predominantly Christians. That's why you have freedom of religion. You don't find that in a Muslim country. That's all based on Christianity. Well, I'm really harping here, aren't I? The po- got on a rabbit trail. So the point is, you know, that's why, that's how people, folks, some people say, well, well, you're hurting people. Christians believe the further we drift from God, that hurts everybody. And it's not loving to grant somebody a right. Actually, we, we haven't granted the right for certain people to get married. We've granted them the right to redefine what marriage is. That, that's a mistake. So, and, and what we're saying is it's not unloving. We're saying that's not what's best for our country or them. Why? Because God says it's not. So that's, that's where most Bible-believing Christians land on that. Now, there's other people that would make a, another case. You know, other people would say, well, um, you know, if we're Christians, we should love other people. So that means we should be all about, you know, wanting the best for them or, you know, health care for everybody. I mean, Jesus healed people. I mean, so that kind of fits. Or uh, justice for everybody, even the most, that we should, everybody wants that. But they would say we need to more emphasize 
uh, social justice because it's, it's a little bit tilted out of whack. Well, right. We get that. And so Christian people don't always vote the same way. You just need to understand that. But let me say this. I believe the most important issue in this election is a moral issue. I believe that the most important moral issue of this election is judicial activism and abortion. In this country, we abort more than a million babies a year and have been for a long time. Rate decreasing a little bit, but you know, we're doing this. We're saying social justice, right? But let's first protect the most vulnerable. Let's first protect those who don't have a voice. And so typically, Bible-believing Christians vote for candidates who are more pro-life because of that. Please understand me. It's not because Christians want to hurt uh, ladies who are in a difficult situation. It's just the opposite. As a matter of fact, we want to help people who are in a difficult situation or have been in a difficult situation by allowing them to realize God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's hope that he offers to all people no matter what we've done or where we've been. But we want to be part of the solution, not the problem. We don't want to hurt women who are in a tough spot. We want to help them. That's why a lot of people, for example, in our church support heartbeat and Hope Medical. That's why a whole bunch of people in our church are leaders in those organizations. Tony Brubaker, Lisa Idris, Aubrey Decker, uh, Lori Peters, Nadine Felton, Jack Zimmer. We have all kinds of people in our church that are involved. And not only that, when they have a fun, you know, they they have a 5K, a cookie run, which I could get into that. You know, it's a 5K and they give you cookies. So, hey, that's all good. That's September 17th, I think. But I have a wedding that day. But anyway, <laughs> but in October, they'll have like a fundraiser where they're going to be sharing uh, the stories of changed lives through Heartbeat and Hope Medical. And a whole bunch, and, and when you go to those, you'll see a whole bunch of people from Grace. Why? Because they're putting their money where their mouth is. They're, they're sacrificing to love. They're not just talking or voting to love. They're making sacrifices to love. That's what we should be doing as believers. It's amazing to me that, you know, we, we've had some criticism. You know, you're a mega church. Okay. Woo! Um, <laughs> And then some people say, you can't talk about politics, you're a 501c3. Okay. Do you realize Planned Parenthood is a, what, 501c3? That we happen to now give hundreds of millions of government dollars to every year. By the way, in the last election cycle, in 14, Planned Parenthood gave to candidates... Over $6 million. They couldn't be more political. They're a 501c3. But, we, we, but our, our, we're, we're so, some people are so skewed in their thinking. They're thinking, oh, we can't even bring up the topic of politics. But 
Planned Parenthood could use government money to funnel to candidates who they think will support you know, what they're doing. It's kind of bizarre. And how does that happen? How, how does all this stuff happen with abortion, uh, moral values, judicial activism? We have a constitution. Our constitution was written with meaning. Judicial activism is where, and, and the way they would describe it, a judicial activist, a, an activist judge would say, the constitution is a living and breathing document. When they say that, what they mean is, we have these words of the constitution that we can kind of make say whatever we want to say in any given time period. So for us, in this hour, we can make these words say something that was never really meant. Where originous judges would say, no, the Constitution means something, and so you have to interpret the Constitution by what it meant, by the intent of the writers. You can't just make it say anything. You have to go by what they meant when they wrote it. They knew what they were talking about. And so you have this huge thing with judges. So now, this year, conservative judges are in the minority now. One of the most conservative judges has died on a hunting trip or something. And so now, as always happens, when a judge is, is, leaves office in an election year, it's always put off till after the election. Have, you know, both sides of the party do this. And so now it's time for another judge. I think this is the biggest moral issue facing our country. It affects everything. It affects our values. It affects how we define things, define marriage. We define marriage differently now than any culture previous to us that has ever done. It's not just Christians that define marriage, one man, one woman. Every culture in the world has defined marriage that way until a few years ago with some European countries and now us. That, that's, it's that kind of thing that's at stake. You know, in Canada right now, because of hate laws, I mean, things are already against the law, but you pile on a hate law, and then it's overreach. So now, for example, in Canada, a preacher in a church cannot say, you know, on a radio program or over the air, if his sermon is broadcast in any way, he cannot say that homosexuality is wrong. That is a hate crime now in Canada. That's where we're heading in America. Won't change what we're doing because we obey God's laws rather than man's. But I'm just saying, that's where we're heading with this. But I want you to know something. I'm not saying all this to try to get anyone to change their vote. That's not my motivation. I'm trying to help people, Christians, understand each other. And the most important thing is no matter what happens in the November election, whoever's elected, God is still in control.
God is still in control. It's not like he looks down and, oh, the ele- whoa, didn't see that coming. Whoa, that got away from me there. It's not that way. God knows. God's ultimately in control. And it's going to be okay. And God's church will continue to preach the word, the real church. And God's church, Jesus' church, he builds the church. And that will happen whether they're in oppressive countries or not. Sometimes the church flourishes in oppressive countries where Christians are persecuted. And that could be where we're heading. But that's okay. God's in control. Interesting thing is after Jesus answers this question, love God, love people, the whole motivation law completely upside down from what everybody's thinking. He doesn't give them a ch- They can't respond. He answers in such a way that if they were kind of figuring out what, which way he might go with this, and they probably had some ways to come back and counter-argue and nitpick, and it's like, they got nothing. They can't nitpick his answer. It's so revolutionary, so complete. But then Jesus asks a question. And it involves politics. Jesus asks, and he asks a question that kind of freaks him, stumps him. He doesn't ask the question in order to win an argument. He doesn't ask the question in order to one-up them or win a debate. He asks the question to win their hearts. And he basically says, the Messiah, all this has been about the political Messiah that you've been expecting. To throw off Rome's rule. He says, the Messiah, who's he descend from? Who's the great man that, that is the ancestor of the Messiah? And they all know the answer, and they're right. They, they all answer. They, they got this one cold. David. It's David. And, and they're right. It is David. But then he says, well, look what David said. David said he calls the Messiah that was to come from his lineage as Lord. That's never done in the first century. You might call an ancestor, you know, they're kind of my Lord, little lowercase words. You know, my Lord, lowercase. Uh, That's how people talk. But people in the first century would never talk as a descendant or a son or a grandson or a great-great-grand. They'd never call Lord. It just wasn't done. But then Jesus throws it out and says, well, why does David call that future Messiah from his lineage, Lord. And when Jesus does this, he causes them, he basically challenges them, he redefines for them who the Messiah is. And by the way, he's not saying, I'm bringing you some new teaching about who the Messiah is. He's saying, your Bible, the Old Testament, already teaches you that the Messiah is more than just David's lineage, David's son. He has divine origins. He's David's, he's descended from David, earthly. He's also the son of God, is what he's teaching them. And he invites them to go reinvestigate, re-look at their Bibles and one more time search out who the Messiah really is. And by the way, we need to, we need to continually do the same thing. We need to continually go back to the word And have God define for us who Jesus is. Because every culture 
in every time will try to twist Jesus into being somebody that's more like them. And God's not given us that option. God defines who Jesus is. And we have to continually keep coming back to that. We have to be connected to the word in that way. So how do we get right with God? Well, it's not through rule keeping. It's not through voting for the right candidate. It's through faith in Christ. God invites all. Just by putting your faith in Christ. Two days later, Jesus dies, voluntarily gives up his life to be tortured and killed for us, for you and me today. If we will just respond by faith, that means that we believe who Jesus was as God defined him, fully man, fully God, divine, eternal, dying for us. And that we trust in what Jesus did is enough, it's sufficient to pay for our sin so we don't have to. And that's how God is just and can still forgive us. That's the most important decision that you ever make in your life. And I'll tell you, the reason that it's kind of freaky for me to sit here and talk through some political issues is because my worst fear is somebody will interpret that as being against their political viewpoint and because of that, we'll be closed to that most important message, the gospel. It's God first. It's God first in every area of our life. And God loves you, has died for you, and invites you to come into relationship with him through faith. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. Before I do that, if there's anyone here and you're a little foggy on your relationship with God through faith like I'm talking about, that you make this decision, that you respond to the news of the gospel that Jesus died for you. If you're a little foggy or you have any questions, I invite you to go to room one. It's right over there at the corner of this room. And I'll be over there. I'll be happy to answer any questions you have, talk to you. If you don't have time for that because it's Labor Day weekend or you got things going on, and you don't have time to talk, just say, hey, don't have time, but I like, you know, I'll give you a little pamphlet that you can read in the convenience of your own home to kind of help explain that to you. It's the most important decision. And again, one more reminder. If you need to get baptized, if you're a believer and you haven't met with a pastor yet, you can do that, room 42, right after I pray. Let's Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your love for us. And we here who are believers, God, we thank you that you love us even though we don't deserve it. We're messed up. We're moral foul-ups. And you love us anyway. And you made a way for us to be forgiven. It's not through law-keeping because we can't do that good enough. God, thanks for loving us with sacrifice at great cost. Thank you. And Father, for those who, who are not believers yet, we pray that they would, in spite of what we're talking about and all the things as we go through scripture and topics that are brought up, or that through all that they would see your love for them and that your spirit would touch their heart and draw them, woo them, uh, invite them into relationship with you and that they would respond and that being here at Grace would help them to respond. 
Lord, please make that happen. Lord, thank you for every single person that's in this room. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here. Next Sunday, baptism. After our services, outdoor baptism, we're going to have a great time. See you then.